Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always, be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. Now, I may have moved on from the Psycho sequels, but that doesn't mean Daily Horror Habit's Psycho coverage is over, as this week's guest and I are discussing Gus Van Zant's 1998 shot-for-shot remake of Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 classic, Psycho. Utilizing Joseph Stefano's original script and replicating many of Hitchcock's own filmmaking techniques, this modernizing of a psychological horror classic once again focuses on Marion Crane, this time played by Anne Heche, who embezzles $400,000 from her employer to start a new life with her boyfriend Sam Loomis, this time played by Viggo Mortensen. But upon taking shelter at the Bates Motel during a rainstorm, Marion meets the eccentric motel owner Norman Bates, played by Vince Vaughn, and... At this point, you should be able to guess how her plans go. They do not go well. Spoiler. And joining me this week to chat remakes, matricidal maniacs, and mommy issues is returning friend of the show, freelance writer for websites such as Dread XP, PlayStation Universe, and Game Watcher, and the better half of a little-known podcast called Safe Room, Mr. Neil Bold himself. Welcome back to the show, man. Hello, hello. How are you doing, anyway? Not too bad. Always enjoy uh, getting to chat movies with you, as I always say, the other half of uh, your horror brain, right? So yeah. <laughs> it's great to not only have you back chatting any types of horror movies, but more specifically for this conversation, you know, a big part of it is going to focus on the approach that Gus Van Zandt's film took in it being a shot-for-shot remake. And mm. in actually sitting down and watching this film and realizing like, oh, this is the first actual shot-for-shot remake that I've seen, when I hear a lot of other people kind of discuss remakes, they tend to lump in films that perhaps don't necessarily go too far from, you know, like have a major deviation from the original, like the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre film comes to mind. Like I've heard a lot of people refer to that as a shot-for-shot remake, but in actually watching a shot-for-shot remake, it's like... I don't know that I would actually consider that one to be. It's one that maybe is very faithful in it, not deviating from that script too much or, you know, expanding on the lore terribly differently or anything like that. Um, But it is not what I would consider a shot for shot. No, I would call it a beat for beat. You know, know, it's hitting those story beats in the same order, basically, which, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And well, it does leave a bit more interpretation. This is... I suppose the other one is um, Funny Games, maybe, I think. I think that's because Michael Hancock, well, he remade his own film shot for shot. But, it's like, it's a, but you know, that was a different thing because that was um, obviously translating it to the English language and all that. But yeah, that, that was an odd one in that regard. But yeah, this is, it, it sounds so pointless on the surface, doesn't it? When you just feel <laughs> like, we're remaking it. No, we're, we really are just remaking it. And that, oversimplifies it a little bit but yes you know that that for all intents and purposes it is you know a shot for shot as they say um but yeah i think you have to sort of dig into the weeds of it to um really find the fascinating bits and bobs about it and uh there are plenty to be fair yeah you know i guess when you're talking about this movie or know about this movie and the zeitgeist of film and horror and remakes and these things before you actually watch it 
doesn't necessarily help going into it and discovering some of Gus Van Zandt's quotes about it, right? Because he has a quote, one of those quotes where he's like, well, the reason I remade it is so no one else would have to. Or he also said something along the lines of like, oh, well, a remake is a gimmick or just a marketing ploy because, you know, you take something that's old that has a certain fan base around it and then you just bring it to a new audience and you don't have to do much work. You know, I'm paraphrasing there, yeah. but um, I think that it's difficult, especially for somebody like myself, that's just going through the entire series for the first time. And then you get to the remake. It's difficult not to go in with really low expectations based on the fact that, you know, you're trying to live up to Hitchcock's classic, which is, you know, a timeless masterpiece at this point. And at the same time, you know, seeing the director's attitude towards it. But, you know, as you mentioned, I think it's a film that if you're able to get over that initial hurdle of like, yeah, this seemingly insurmountable task, fool's errand, if you will, of remaking one of the greatest films of all time, there's more to it than I think people are willing to give it credit for in some instances, or some people are just downright dismissive of. Um, but I guess before we get into like specifics, just for the audience, um, you know, what is your general feeling on remakes? Are you mm. typically a fan of them, or how do you feel? Yeah, it's something I've softened on, but I think it went, you know, back to when I think of stuff like um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or the thing, things like that, you know, that had already had, you know, these 50s B movies effectively made of them, and The Blob being another one, which I have great fondness for, but they very much capture the era they're in. And then you had the remakes, which were, you know, very much of their era. And I like that. You know, I, I like when, if you're going to remake something, don't have to make it exactly the same necessarily. Give it its own identity. Really give it the flavour of the, the times, you know, which there is a bit of in this film. And, you know, I think <laughs> it's testament to say even that, you know, Dawn of the Dead is one of my favourite films ever. And I don't despise the remake. I quite like it, you know, which is doubly shocking because mm. Zack Snyder made it. And I think that was pretty much the plateau of where my admiration sure. for Zack Snyder was. But Fair, yeah, very relatable. Yeah, I mean, that was like, basically, the only thing that was the same was there was a mall. That was it. <laughs> and everything else was uh, could have been any zombie movie in the last 20, 30 years. And that's fine. I think that works for it really well. Uh, it really just does come down to the what you do with it. And... One of the things that usually does bug me is when you go for a very plain interpretation of what was there before or you miss the point entirely. Um, yeah, and it's which is done so many times. I think there's a lot of discussion about that sort of Platinum Dunes era of um, early 2000s remakes and generally they're quite good. You know, I think House of Wax is a great example. You know, I think that's, um, that's a film that I... I thought it was a guilty pleasure then, but I don't really see it that now. I just think it was a pretty damn good horror movie in its own right. Um, same with stuff like 13 Ghosts, um, The House on Haunted Hill, you know, things like that, uh, where you can see the correlation. There's fun in what they're doing. They may not be as good uh, in some ways, but it, they're fun in the same way. They're like an evolution of what those films were doing. You know, they're schlocky, they're silly, they're not entirely serious and it works fine for them but um yeah I, I, it's so remakes in general don't really have a problem i think it's just when we get to the shorter and shorter cycles where we get to these remakes you know being you know we often talk about this between ourselves in video game terms where you know 
there are games that came out 15 years ago getting remade and it seems pointless but then the technology has moved on so much that you're like i get it maybe like that i mean only recently as a good example is um metal gear sort of free getting remade and you know like the fact that they're going to use the ex- they're going to use the exact same script the same voice lines from the original thing like that they are by all accounts making a shot for shot remake of the game that looks better that's it with a bit some quality of life and people are already sort of doing example. that and yeah they're doing that thing already where people are like well, what's the point it's like the same people funny enough that were kind of scolding konami for allowing someone else to take on silent hill 2 um right. and maybe <laughs> and probably a change things there so yeah it, it's i think it just depends on how precious you are about the thing being remade i mean the old adage goes what was there before is still there you know, you can still go back to it. I can get how that might sully your memory of it somewhat when you think there's something about it that really ends up being like the popular version of that, maybe. Because um, that's happened in all mediums, you know, where you get a remake that eclipses the, the original um, in sort of pop culture. I mean, The Thing is a great example of that. You know, try finding the thing from another world in this country. Uh, I think the first time I got to watch that, it just it happened to have been on TV that week and, you know, on-demand catch-up allowed me to watch it finally. Um, so that was great. But yeah, it's... Uh, and same with stuff like Scarface. You know, it's it's fine. It, it goes that way. It just recency bias can work that way. And I'm sure the same will happen to some of our favourite films from, from the last 20 years where a remake will come out and we're like, oh, hang on. You know, that's uh, that didn't need remaking like that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and there have been plenty already, let's be fair. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that, you know, and I've said it on the show plenty of times where I'm, I've always been more open to remakes just because I'm interested to see how a filmmaker that it, in their own right has their own sort of toolbox of techniques mm-hmm. and just influences that they have that might differ from the original filmmaker from that original film. But I'm always interested to see how they can kind of like play around in that pre-existing world or IP or brand and what they can add to it potentially. Even if sometimes, you know, they don't end up actually adding all that much that's either notable or even well executed on, or you get maybe perhaps new bits of lore or story that it's like, that kind of goes against the grain of what was established in the original and whatnot. But, you know, I guess the older I get, I just become less and less precious about stuff like that because as you said, the remakes that they're going to make and if they adapt into TV series and whatnot or any other medium for that matter, it doesn't affect the originals that Mm -hmm. I love for a variety of reasons. So I'm always open to remakes, but I think at the same time, you know, it begs the question, even though we have seen some remakes that are like beat for beat that have been well done, there have also been films that have had a beat for beat approach that at the end of the day, I've kind of just like shrugged at and not really been like, I was like, I mean, yeah, you remade it, but it's like, Was it worth the effort, the time, and the energy and whatnot? So going into Psycho 1998 and it being this shot-for-shot approach, I mean, before we even get into, again, specifics, like what is the value of making a shot-for-shot remake? Um, You know, I was talking to you before this, you know, where I think you kind of got to liken it to a play, you know, how the base materials, the script is there for everyone to use and different people will come into that and do the same roles, the same shots effectively on stage and the same scenes, same way. And, but it's not the same as something that someone saw in 1960, whatever, 
you know, uh, you are getting a different way of doing it. And sometimes those shows do get modernized and flipped up and changed for the benefit of a modern audience. It doesn't always work um, again. But yeah, I, I think it's not a problem here to uh, give it a go. I don't think it's like a cop out because how fucking hard is it to just really have to go in, look at another film and try and recreate it with modern style. Now, a thing that I admire about the idea is that it took the things that couldn't be done before and sort of does them anyway. You know, you know like that initial shot, the whole tracking thing where Hitchcock had to basically make do with a few tricks of the trade to make it work because he couldn't do it like he wanted to. And then Gus Van Sant's really done that, you know. I think, yeah, I think what was it? he did. Hitchcock did Pans and Dissolves. That was the one. And whereas the new version does the complete shot and the whole way through. And it's really quite good and in the way it's done. And then just little things like certain lines being left in that were hit by the sensors and stuff. And yeah, I like that idea that you have these little extra bits of context. And that, again, just makes it feel like a modernization in a good way. Um, I suppose the problem here is if you have all these things that are very much rooted in a time and a place and you're modernizing it, it's how you go about modernizing it. You know, there are you know, some little touches to sort of show you that, hey, it's the 90s rather than, yeah, so Rob Zombie naturally is in the soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> How many times in the 90s did Rob Zombie appear on a, a film soundtrack? Um, right. <laughs> and, you know, and then, like, the weirdest thing was a bit that actually did make me laugh as a, what the fuck, that's a bit daft to sort of ram your point home is just when Julianne Moore comes in and her character is introduced and she's wearing these, like, fuck off headphone things yeah like the and, bright yellow walkman headphones and they just stop on it like that and it's i just thought back to that shot in the original thing and it's like someone photoshopping the headphones on top in a way like yeah <laughs> <laughs> it sounded um and the other thing that it does bring i suppose is you have different actors obviously with very different mannerisms um some seem to be trying to emulate it some just naturally seem to pull it off in, in modernization i think i want to say Anne hesch because i've always called her Anne hesch but you know it's <laughs> but you know for someone who apparently hadn't even seen the original um she does at times have some of the same sort of cadence same sort of mannerisms you know john lee did and it's quite impressive and i think does all right you know, I, th I think what was being done, I think she was probably not quite the level of star needed for that role, you know, maybe because you know, if you're going to replicate that, it's the old, um, you know, there's the, a rug pull. The idea this is your main character doesn't feel as believable with Anne Hersh, to be fair. And, you know, I was reading like some of the people who could have got cast and Drew Barrymore being one of the four. That probably would have been a bit on the nose two years yeah. after Scream, where they'd basically done that very thing, you know, right. <laughs> that, you know which was in, in itself kind of a mini homage to Psycho. Um, yeah, so it, it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because um, some people are playing it like it is still the 1960s, 1950s sort of time, and others are like rooted in the modern era. 
I, I think William H. Macy is, is a good example of that, where it's like, yes. yeah, he, he feels like he belongs in the original film. Uh, and, you know, Julianne Moore does not, you know. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, I mean. William H. Macy is very much like a gumshoe right out of yeah. the 60s, right? And um, yeah, no, that's, I think that's a really fascinating take on it because I felt similarly about it that kind of gives this movie an interesting quality where um, it at times has almost sort of like a dream, sort of like a dreamlike logic almost in it. And I know mm. how overplayed that terminology is, but like, like you're saying, you know, you have some people that feel like they are playing in two different times and time periods. Um, and that can at times make some scenes come off as sort of awkward or to the degree that I was like, it feels like I'm watching a play and the people that are actually in these roles know that they're being watched carrying through this. This was like yeah. the weird sort of meta thing that I sent you a message about, which, you know, I'm not going to say that the film was intentionally doing that, but there is this sort of strangeness to watching, you know, you have that sense of the familiar with it because it is a shot for shot remake, but then, you know, the little touches, whether it's in the performances or whether it's in the techniques or the, those little line changes that to their credit, you know, not changing a good deal of that script, granted it's part of being yeah. shot for shot, but what they added you know, it's either forgettable, which I think is the way that it probably should be. But yeah. at the same time, you know, it adds a little bit more texture to some of the element to some of the conversations. Um, primarily, you know, you know that in opening moment when uh, uh, Marion has that interaction with her boss's client, who's like this scuzzy guy, yeah. right? And he has that really fantastic line, which I have to find now. Um, which was so basically. Marion is saying, uh, thank you, but I think I'll spend the week in bed after he's been, you know, hitting on her and whatnot. And the guy says, uh, only playground to beat Las Vegas, referring yeah. to, you know, her bed and whatnot, which was in the original script, but had to get cut because of the censors. But, you know, it's such a slick, scummy line that's further reinforces like this guy is like kind of scuzzy. Um, but at the same time, you almost completely forget the line as soon mm. as you move on from it, which if anything, you know, if you're going to be doing this shot for shot, then you really can't have a moment that I think stands out in a way that was not apparent in the original film. You yeah. know, I guess that's a tricky thing, right? Because you can have a layer of experimentation, I suppose, which this film certainly does yeah. in a feature, in a, uh, a recurring bit that we'll talk about in a little bit. But I think that, you know, it's a fine line. And if anything, this film from the jump, you can immediately feel how it's a labor of love, which... I think I was not expecting, or maybe it was me not really taking into account just how precise you have to be if you're going to broadcast this remake as shot for shot and really understanding and seeing what goes into that. And, you know, there are some little things that have been amended, something like adding digital blood uh, and and uh, gore effects, I suppose. But I think overall, you know, the fact that they're able to replicate it pretty much perfectly um, is a testament to just, you know, while some of Gus Van Zandt's uh, comments surrounding the film maybe didn't exactly build up a lot of anticipation to actually sit down and watch this, mm. I was really taken with the fact that, oh, no, they were walking the walk that they said they would yeah. um, in a way that I think made this more of a unique experience than I was expecting for a shot-for-shot -shot remake, right? Even if you kind of find yourself going through the paces at some moments, like, yep, that's how I remember it. Yep, this, this and that. But then you know, in that sort of familiarity is really something to be applauded, I think. Yeah, it, it does do something great in that regard, that you have this 
sheer ambition to really go for it down to like filming in the same six week period and stuff it's and and trying you know having to go back and like even put in the mistakes and the continuity mistakes that were there i mean that's still a dedication to the craft yeah i think you could be respected for that i i can see how that's not going to fly with many people when you know you are taking this approach with a film that is revered yeah and any remake at that time was very much viewed with a sort of a sniffy thing i mean the 90s did have its little run of um remakes but tended to be um you know direct for tv sort of things and you know, i think 12 angry men got remade around the same mm-hmm. time <laughs> it's like um itself having a, like a really good cast of people and but yeah it was a tv movie right so yeah. it, it was never gonna sort of reach that sort of a level um yeah i think it does just come back to this idea of it being like a stage play you know trying to get it recreate the magic and see if it works in a modern setting so yeah an experiment, effectively, I think is the best way to put it. And as an experiment, yeah, maybe it, it fails uh, because of certain factors. I mean, one being you can have all the same, the right ingredients to make the same thing. It doesn't mean your cake is going to turn out as good as the cake as the person who made it before. It's you know the instructions are only so go so far. Um, yeah. So what else can you do though with it? It's if you're gonna go, if you're gonna go for it, go for it. And to, I think for the most part, that that is exactly what Gus Van Sant has done. Yeah, he's just gone for it. Yeah, and I want to circle back to something that you mentioned early on, which is how this film handles the modernizing of Psycho's world and the storytelling. Um, for you, like, how does the film succeed in that modernizing, or more importantly, I suppose, like, what does it? add to Psycho with it being in 1998 compared to 1960? Hmm. It's a tricky one because if you're going on distinct moments that are different, not many of them work, I think. But sometimes there's a vibe that really feels in that sort of scuzzy 90s thing we had during the, you know, when you think of Fincher's stuff and around the time, it's kind of like that. Um, specific layer of grime yeah and there's these little nods and winks to it which kind of fill in that sort of meta thing that scream had already done two years before you know i think the little change in the the sort of newly renovated thing or refurbished thing for the the motel on the sign stuff like that just little bits of humor to sort of give the audience a nudge of like yeah we know what we're doing that sort of thing um audience not appreciating it at the time but um mm. <laughs> yeah so atmosphere wise there are moments it works and i think as we've kind of sort of drawn upon earlier having two different eras kind of clash at times doesn't help it um thankfully it comes just before that you know certain amenities become popular in a way that would have changed the story dramatically and like these phones and the way they've gone would have really you know, mess up any chance of doing this again, you know, in the same way. Um, I suppose the most fascinating one is in Vince Vaughn, because if you're going by it being a, a shot-for-shot thing, his performance doesn't work 
uh, as Norman Bates, if you're thinking of Norman Bates as he was. But as a kind of 90s Norman Bates, you know, granted that we kind of had that in that same decade, but yeah. it's it does sort of make sense, you know, that his change in demeanor, his general oiliness, I suppose, about it, he <laughs> feels right for the decade he's in. So that works. But again, then it goes back to, well, if you're remaking it, you're trying to recapture everything beat for beat as well as shot for shot, then no, he's the most out-of-time character in the whole piece as a result. But on the other hand, he is basically the the personification of the 90s without being forced, you know, in the same way as, you know, Julianne was super bright headphones. It's (laughs) a different beast. So yeah, he's probably simultaneously the weakest and the strongest depending on how you're viewing the film. Yeah, I guess this is a great point to just dissect his approach to Norman Bates. Um, you know, I su- I agree in the sense that, like, he is facilitating the energy of the 90s, right? Mm. Um, but again, to your point, like, if you're going to be doing the shot-for-shot remake, I feel like you need to be more consistent with that energy, right? I think early on, you do get moments Um, of that sort of scuzziness, right? Especially when they're in the hotel at the very beginning, right? And it's like you hear people having sex through the walls and then you even have Marion at one point be like, I hate being in a place like this with you, which is, you know, that line is even more heightened when you have the exterior factors uh, going on next door and making it a point that the audience is in on that. Um, And I think ultimately, though, he's just so out of place with what Norman Bates is as a mm. character, you know, I suppose he feels more in line with the novel's depiction of Norman Bates, yeah. where he's this guy that, and, you know, if you're going to compare him to just the personification of the character, if you look at him compared to uh, Anthony Perkins, right? And it's the type of thing where it's like, you understand why people fall into Perkins' web, if yeah. you will. With Vince Vaughn, though, like the way that his character comes off, it's just like, I don't know if I'm going to go eat milk and sandwiches with this guy in the back yeah. parlor because he's just like, as you put it, as you very aptly put it, he is this oily hotel manager who's like, I also think that um, his sort of awkwardness mannerisms is just like more, uh, I, I suppose, like alarming almost. Yeah. Like, whereas Norman, it's like he's falling over himself to be, or rather Perkins is falling over himself to like be overly polite to a yeah. fault at times. With Vince Vaughn's character, it's like he's not being overly polite or anything like that at times. He's just like has this weird, awkward laugh to himself at inappropriate moments where it's like, I think I'm just going to like keep driving. I'm going to keep uh, dealing with this rainstorm. Yeah, it does just veer too much into being creepy. Yeah. And, yeah. But I suppose one of the ways you could look at it is how there's a kind of acceptance of creepy is in people like that, you know, in just general politeness. Um, that maybe you could get away with that a bit more as a 90s character. But yeah, I think for, it's crucial for that character to have a real sort of split, you know, where you know he is just almost oblivious and not as um not the way he is in this film, if he's going to be both characters. And yeah, it doesn't quite work in that regard. Yeah, which... Is a shame, um, and it's all, he also has one scene that I think stands out as like 
what is really added by including this. And I suppose it's, it is embodying that again, 90 scuzziness because it's what you've expected, but actually seeing the character perform the act. And this is when, you know, Marion is getting into the shower and we have the famous people scene. Yeah. But Van Zandt had added the fact that, you know, uh, it makes it very clear that, you know, Norman is like beating off while she he's looking through the people, which it's like, okay, on one hand, some people might have assumed that that was why, you know, Perkins' character had that peephole in the original film, but it's left to the imagination. Granted, it was also, you know, censorship and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I think that in terms of actually like having us see this as the viewer, it's kind of like, okay, what is really truly added from con- from confirming our worst, uh, you know, I suppose, assumption of what he's doing with that peephole, right? Um, and I think that for that sort of moment, it's kind of just like, Feels a little try hard at times, yeah. uh, I suppose, or it's just like, I don't really know that you need this because what does it add to the character that you mm. didn't already think about the character? Um, and also, you know, it almost kind of goes against what you learn about the people in, I think it was the last film or the third film. I can't remember. Uh, no, it was the fourth film. But the you learn in the fourth yeah. film that, yeah, the origin, the beginning, that he didn't, that Norman didn't put the people in there. It was something that his father did and that his mother chastised mm. the father for doing, obviously. But I don't know if that's supposed to be like the cycle continuing, if you will, of, you know, the sins of the father been passed yeah. down to the sins of the son type of a thing. But ultimately, it was the thing where I always found Norman Bates, the character, to be such an enigma compared to, you know, his other, I suppose, serial killer counterparts in film because of the fact that for a majority of the time that the viewer sees that character – it's them being this supposedly pristine model uh, citizen that is like kind of selling this facade about who they are to their victims and whatnot. And in showing us a moment like that, it kind of it dispels that, I suppose, illusion. It's something that you already know. It's Norman yeah. Bates. You know, he surpasses film and all sorts of pop culture references and these things that people that haven't seen the films know who Norman Bates is. Yeah. And I just suppose that anything that kind of shatters that view of who Norman Bates is. For me, at times, I was just like, uh, this doesn't add anything. If anything, it makes the character less significant because it kind of just feels like a stereotype of what you would assume a pervy hotel manager would do. I don't know. I think five years later, it probably would have washed a bit better just because there were so many remakes being that sort of grimy, um, nastier version of what came before. But yeah. Yeah, but um, I think ultimately... In terms of the casting, what I found to be most interesting is what we talked about earlier was the fact that you have people that are playing this film pretty straight in terms of just like they're coming to it with this new modern setting and whatnot. But then you have some people that are coming to it and very clearly feel like they're trying to do their best impression of a performance that was rooted in the time period that the original Psycho was obviously filmed in. Um, I guess for you, like, what did you think of Anne Heche? In, as Marion Crane, did you feel that she added a new dimension to the character? Do you think that she kind of lived up to the Marion Crane character and whatnot? Did she add anything new to it? I mean, she brought a lot of herself to it, I think, um, uh, without having the direct influence. Like I was saying earlier, still managing to sort of get a bit of what was there before. You know, but I don't think she quite conveys the paranoia that Janet Lee does, you know, in that sort of like shit, they're onto me, they're onto me, you know, and I think it's 
not entirely her fault. I just think the way Van Sant sort of frames that whole thing with the voiceovers in her head makes it a little too clear that it's like, this is what she's thinking could happen like that. And I know that's there in the original too, but it felt more in place with what was going on. Um, yeah, I just, and I think Janet Lee just had this quality about her that went in sort of really showing the panicky eagerness to get out of this situation and uh, constantly having this regret for taking this path, if you will. And, you know, it sold this whole idea of like the temptation of just, you know, I could easily get away with this. I could easily take this money and, and run like that. Something's missing there in Hedge's version of it. Again, I don't know if it's just the character or the way they've plumped up some of the other characters, um, you know, especially with Sam. You know, I think that they've given him a bit more. And I don't know, and Vigo Morrison, I think it's just distractingly handsome. So I think it um, <laughs> yeah. makes him a bit more prominent for some reason. Sure. And yeah, so it, it's a weird sort of combination of factors, I think, that mean we don't get the same effect, you know, which happens occasionally in this film where you re- recreate certain moments and they don't feel as good. Um, you know, I think this and the shower scene in particular, the shower scene is where it whiffs it, really, really whiffs it because it's such an iconic scene that you... How, how are you going to top it? And I think colour and... You know, better picture quality means that it really just ruins that whole, you know, shadowed face reveal. You know, it, it doesn't work the same way. In terms of the modernizing aspects of this film, allows you know Van Zant to attack certain scenes with the modern techniques that were not available at the time of the original film, as we stated. At yeah. the same time, when you apply that to you know some of the kill scenes and some of the Moments in the original film that were not necessarily due to like technical limitations, but it's just how they went about shooting it. It mm. kind of reveals some of the inferiority, I suppose, which is blasphemous when you're talking about the shower sequence. But the fact that, you know, if you're going to redo that scene, you have yeah. to realize that doing that in more HD and having it fully in color is going to do a disservice I think to that scene. And I would say that's true of all the kill scenes um, in the film, specifically, you know, at the end of the movie, um, when you have that reveal of, you know, of uh, Norman dressed up as his mother, like that moment falls so incredibly flat for me because it doesn't have the same sort of, I suppose, mystique of the original film. It's also framed quite differently. That's the one shot. I think that is the most, one of the most different moments Um, instead of having, Norman from afar and the light is swinging around. So you're still kind of like half piecing together. Oh, is that him dressed up as his mother or who is this in this? It's full on. It's zoomed in and it looks like Vince Vaughn in a kimono with a bad wig on. Like it's one of those things where when you fully kind of like take away the shadows and everything and sort of the camera trickery, I suppose, of the original and you're like, oh, here's this more HD. Here's this in full blood color. It kind of takes away from some of that, um, yeah. I suppose, tension or just overall, it's like I'm seeing far more than I should be allowed to see. It's kind of like yes. if you went back and redid Halloween and you turn the brightness up on all of the you know lights and everything. So it's like there's barely any shadows and 
it's a guy in a Dickies workman suit and a bad, you know, uh, William Shatner mask kind of thing. Yeah, and I think the physique is an important thing here as well because you know well, Vaughn is also much that, stockier yeah. than, than Perkins, and part of the reason it works for Perkins is that he's supposed to be a frail old lady, you know, and yeah, everything we hear about Norma is that she is just a frail old thing at death's door, blah blah blah, like that, and then you know every time you do see. You know, Norman as Norma, like the body just doesn't work. You you can almost instantly identify it as the the, the the huskiest guy in the room, you know, effectively. And that just, I mean, nowhere is that more apparent than the shot, you know, from above uh, as he's carrying his mother down the stairs. It's like there's the body, little body, frail as anything. Norman, nah, you know, it, and it just, I mean, if you were really watching this first, which obviously I don't think anyone's doing that on purpose. I hope not. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you do, that's great for you because there's a lot of this would work a lot better. But sure. at the same time, I think it gives away its tells a, li- a little easier. And maybe they don't matter as much now in a time where they're almost like embedded into pop culture where everyone knows, yeah, he is his mother. Everyone knows that they do the reveal with the body and all that and, and the shower scene and all these things are, are just there for people who've never seen the film, as you said. But still, you know, if you, you've got to have the structure, you know, if you're going to make it meticulous work. And, you know, and Hitchcock, you know, as a director, was just fantastic at the old rug pull and the twists and turns. And, you know, Psycho is not even, like, the best example, I think. You know, he's done so many films where he's just built that brilliantly. You know, incidentally, Hitchcock wasn't, you know... Uh, afraid of a remake himself. You know, he remade one of his own films mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. The Man Who Knew Too Much. The Man Who Knew um, Too Much, right? Yeah. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, I've seen both. And, yeah, they're not shot for shot, but, yeah, they are quite good. And I think there's another one. I think it's Saboteur and Sabotage might be the same as well. I think Yes. Would, uh, yeah. also remakes. So, yeah, he'd done it. Um, but those were more for, you know, he made those in England and then remade them when he was in the US with all the other stuff. But yeah, he was great at taking two very separate stories and just making it feel like a connected whole. You know, like, and that yeah. always swerved you into it. I think we rush a little quick. I think we, it, it is slightly shorter. It feels like it anyway. It, I believe it is. Yeah. Yeah, and I think like we get the the point a bit too quickly in terms of like getting out of that initial, you know, paranoid hysteric, you know. To catch a beef style thing of like, oh no, you know, she's on the run, all that stuff, which is really captivating in its own right. You know, it's the thing that makes it feel less like a horror movie in a traditional sense now, but without it, everything else doesn't work. You know, Norman and everything he does is just incidental. He just happens to be someone that <laughs> and ends up in the picture by accident, and that, that's it. You know, which is has been the basis for so many slasher films uh, over the years since, and I think that's one of the best sort of uh, premises you could do. The you know we're going to end up here for no reason for some reason, and that's going to be our lives ruined. But I don't think many films have ever put that much effort into getting that first half right. It always feels very mm. corny and put together like oh yeah okay all of these things just happen to happen that means they they had to go off this trail and now they've got to go into the woods and all that but 
Here it just feels like perfect structure, works all fine. Yeah. There is a disjointed nature in this where it feels like they're trying to rush through the boring bit. (laughs) Yes, exactly. It feels like they're kind of making a beeline for those most iconic moments. And, you know, one thing that, something that I was wondering while I was watching the movie, I was like, are these people delivering their lines too quickly? Because that came off Hmm. a couple of times when they're having these bits of dialogue. It felt like while this is shot for shot, at the same time, these scenes maybe feel shorter because they are, because it felt like people were rushing through their deliveries and were barely giving the person that they were acting opposite, like enough time to really almost like grasp what was just said before they are immediately responding. Like that was a weird sort of quality to this that I was like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with all of these beats and these scenes and these bits of dialogue, but there is something very off about this. And it part of it could be, you know, the performances, um, which I don't necessarily have like a great deal of issue with other than Vince Vaughn, who I think established I was not a huge fan of his performance. But overall, it just it feels like there's no sort of just basking in the moments in a way that, you know, Hitchcock didn't necessarily make a point of like, I'm gonna have these long drawn out pauses or these scenes that go on for too long or anything like that. But it just felt like people having a conversation where in this film, it felt like people that were trying to memorize their lines before they go up on stage yeah. for a play, if anything. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, again, does just feed into that idea of it being like a play. Um, so it's so hard to tell sometimes when some of this stuff is intentional or not because of the how slapdash the whole idea of what is it supposed to be? Uh, is it supposed to be a faithful remake? Is it supposed to be some meta-commentary? Is it supposed to be a, a reimagining or a modernization and it can't quite draw from any of those things for long before veering off on another path and maybe it's just the focus on trying to make it faithful and accurate you know as that experiment goes that kind of lost the way certain other places in trying to focus on like the technical aspect more um which is understandable and, you know i think you can do all the shots and all that stuff but you know the one thing that you cannot have exactly the same is the performances because you are coming in with different people of different star levels different abilities um different interpretations of what they think those characters are going to be you know yeah and some of them are biased because of what they've seen and some are inherently not because they haven't and so yeah it's naturally going to be a very different performance you know how much do we see it in film discussion where many people disagree on how a character is portrayed or what they're doing or what the meaning of this is or what the meaning of that is? It happens all the time. I mean, what we're saying now about this film is hardly the most, it's nowhere near the worst thing people have ever said about this film. You know, it's um, fairly kind yeah. you know, in some ways. So it just shows you, you can come at these things in many different ways. It, you bring your bias to something and intentionally or not, you you are going to change it as a result. What I've been thinking about while you've been saying that is while this film, again, has a slew of performances that I would not necessarily say are, you know, ill-fitting at all the time or are poor uh, portrayals of these characters, something that I found very distracting, though, which maybe is just a byproduct of when this film was made in the late 90s, and you know, not to say they don't make uh, star-studded films nowadays, but it's the type of thing where I found it so distracting that this film, every single role is filled by somebody notable in film, whether they are yeah. a leading person, whether they're known for supporting or a character actor, like 
that was one of the things that kind of threw me a little bit. And, you know, <laughs> it is um, probably has largely to do with, you know, I'm not as well familiar with the original actors and the original Psycho, their, you know, entire bodies of work. And in this film, obviously, it being a much later film, close to, you know, my generation, um, I was much more familiar with everybody in this film. And I found that to be distracting to a fault, which I'm sure influenced um, my perception of even some performances that I didn't necessarily feel were uh, a letdown or anything like that. But I'm like, I suppose in Vince Vaughn's case, I'm like, oh, that's the guy from Dodgeball. And now he's jerking off looking through a peephole type of thing. Like, it's one of those things where it's like every (laughs) role I have four or five different points of reference for them. And I start thinking about that as soon as they show up and then doing the mental math of like, okay, well, they're this big of a star. So how long are they going to be alive for this or that? Uh, But granted, you know, it being a remake, I know everybody's fate. (laughs) Yeah. And I think I said to you beforehand, it's like the, the most distracting thing for me was it felt like I was watching some sort of secret Paul Thomas Anderson film because so much of the cast had been, <laughs> it was in his sort of 90s, 2000s run, you know, in Macy, in Moore, and, and it's, yeah, that, that was funny in itself. But um, yeah, it is possibly the most late 90s, early 2000s cast when you think about it. You know, I know Viggo Watson wasn't really like a, a big deal yet, but he, he was, going on to do that film you know the lord of the rings after this anyway you know i did laugh at seeing that he'd been in another hitchcock remake the same year in a remake of dial for murder which is a, a, oh, that's, that's okay. an interesting little <laughs> twist yeah to find out <laughs> so you know he was uh, on a roll that one. um yeah <laughs> so it's an odd one i mean i suppose the weirdest thing uh, is just stuff like little roles getting taken up by character actors you know Robert Forster being there, you know, temporarily Philip Baker Hall, again, another sort of Paul Thomas Anderson stalwart, just suddenly showing up for a bit. And Flea, of course, uh, of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, doing one of those, oh, it's Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, <laughs> which is, you know, I, I said to you, it's like the second time in about a week that I've seen him in a film. It's like, it's, it, it's odd. Um, as you said, it, it just feels a bit much in terms of star power. I mean, Oddly, when you think about it now, the dynamic of the original was that, you know, Janet Lee was the biggest star and she's the one killed off. And now that's kind of reversed when you think about it, because Julianne Moore is technically the biggest star of those two. So, and Vince Vaughn, as a post-psycho career, had a very different post-psycho career to Andy Perkins and arguably ended up being a bigger star than him in a very different way. I mean, the thing that kind of, lets him off slightly now for me is that having seen freaky and you know what he does that in mm. pulling off mm-hmm. a dual role like that is a very different dual role but like it's shows he can do it you know it just this was a, maybe a bit much pressure for the kind of guy he is that it, it doesn't quite work you know as i said as you pointed out earlier the biggest thing is vince vaughn can be charming but there's always something snaky and oily about him you know that mm. you can't quite <laughs> Yeah, you're not charmed by him in that sort of like alluring way. It's more of a like, hey, he could be a good guy. It's like, but then secretly it's back here. He's probably an arsehole, that sort of thing. Like that, right. where you don't <laughs> quite believe in him. So <laughs> it's kind of key. Um, I think that's probably why the TV series kind of works better in having, you know, the young you know, young version. Oh, what's his face? I can't remember his name. The good pretty... surgeon? Yeah, that guy. <laughs> There's a bunch of kids yeah. from that era that, that turned into adult actors that just mushed together for me. <laughs> so, like, uh, 
Oh, yeah. uh, Freddie Highmore. That's it. I wanted to say Freddie Highmore. I was thinking that it wasn't him. It's like, but yes, it take, is the <laughs> take the shot. Take the shot. Kid actors of that era, and saying older and reference them as a YouTuber. So there's a whole bunch of names now in my head that don't add to anything to that uh, list of actor <laughs> names. So now they all just get confused with YouTubers. Yeah. I was just going to say the one performance that is very fleeting, but I think it is like low-key the most accurate in terms of capturing the energy from the original film is James Ramar as the highway patrolman. Mm. I like had to watch rewatch that scene two or three times before looking on IMDb just to be like, could this be the same cop? Because he captures his cadence so perfectly. He looks identical to him, even though those glasses are big as fuck. Like he still looks exactly like him. Yeah. And the way in which he kind of is able to have that 1960s kind of highway patrol cop energy, but it feels fitting for this movie somehow still. Um, it was yeah. one of the rare moments where it's like with William H. Macy, he's dressed like he just stepped out of the 60s or the 50s. <laughs> so it's like that one is a little bit on the nose for me. But I think that, you know, with the highway patrolmen, like they still wear those classic uniforms and whatnot. They still, you know, have a reputation of having that sort of demeanor. So, you know, James Ramar, who is, again, not in much of the movie, um, was right. like low key one of the performances that I was like, oh, that is perfectly fitting. And it is the one performance that I think makes that transition from the original to the remake pretty flawlessly. And granted, it's yeah. one of the smallest parts of the movie, but I can't say the same thing about like the interaction that Marion has, you know, shortly after that with like the car salesman, which feels like it operates in both worlds in a way that's kind of like yes. strange, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a little bit of um, good in what Rita Wilson does as Caroline, the, the, the co-worker of Marion at the beginning. You know, the, mm. there's a little of that, you know, as small a role as that is, and it is basically an exhibition sort of a push to get them to the next bit. It, it, it worked. I think you know, it's an understated role to take, but she you know, did the job. And uh, I think maybe yeah. because it's the kind of thing where you can't really fuck it up without like just making a put a bunch of swears and uh, dirty language you know, <laughs> right. just to just to make sure you know it's the 90s but yeah it's yeah it's fine and you know i think you have those little moments um with uh you know, the, the customer the, the guy with whose money is uh tom cassidy that's the one isn't it yeah played by chad mm-hmm. over yeah yeah he he gives a sort of good modernization of that sleaze and that so like that, I, that kind of worked for me as well. So, but again, that's all in the first half, you know. So, it is telling, you know, the stuff. I, the, the bit I like the most about Psycho, in fact, is that first half. I think it's mm-hmm. it, it's great as a, a suspense film. I think because that's you know where yeah. Hitchcock Hitchcock made his money that way, uh, and the horror stuff kind of is secondary. You know, it's a similar trick he ends up pulling with the birds. You know, where it's very much a oh, this woman wants to get with this guy. And it just so happens that when in the process of doing that, the second half of the movie is about these birds going fucking bananas. And like, I love that. I love that sort of yeah. dynamic of it. And so, yeah, it's no surprise that the first half of the film is probably the stronger half because it's dealing with all that. You know, as a, the only sort of downside is they rush it a bit, maybe don't get the paranoia level quite as high as it should be. But most of the roles involved don't deviate too far and tend to have 
just enough of a modern touch where, as you say, they exist in both worlds, but it's not as bad that they do because then their roles don't really need to be anything more than that anyway. I think it, it hurts the characters who have more to do when they uh, sort of jump between time zones, worlds, if you will. Yeah, I ultimately found that in terms of just being able to kind of keep the integrity of, I suppose, Psycho's original construction, as we've been saying, you know, it doesn't deviate too much, but I think that if anything, it just reiterates how much of a, you know, masterful class um, craftsman that uh, Hitchcock was in terms of how he constructed those films and really, you know, relying on his skill set up until that point in his career and, you know, all the way through his career of just like having these very character centric sort of situations that he was able to ease you into in a way that it's like, I could see myself getting into a situation like this, even though I'm not going to go out and embezzle 400 K it creates this seed of doubt of like, Oh, well, look how easy it is to get carried away. And all of a sudden you find yourself in this situation that's going to upend your life. And, you know, really leading with that for the first half of the film, even almost more than the first half of the film, it also does a service to the horror aspects, which if the movie was focusing on Norman Bates from the outset, this probably, Psycho probably would have ended up being more in line with horror films that, you know, people kind of see what is happening right from the jump to the degree that, it lacks that not only surprise, but also it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess we're going to stretch this as thin as we can. And then by the end of the film, you're kind of over yeah. the initial scare, if you will. It's what you always talk about with like, mm. if you reveal too much of the monster early on, you might as well throw the third act away because nobody's going to be scared of it anymore. And with Psycho being yeah. a fantastic example of being that one-two punch of that methodology where it's like, okay, not only are we going to take a majority of the scares and have them be towards the end of the film, but you also have that one-two punch of like the horror factor really going into overdrive and then the reveal, right, of who is mm. actually committing the killings, which just so perfectly is an encapsulation of Hitchcock's craft. Um, but there's one aspect to the kills that I thought was really interesting. Um, and I think ultimately mm. I've settled on that I'm a fan of it. And it's an addition of Van Zant's. And it's not the blood, which honestly <laughs> – um, I didn't think really added anything other than being notably like pretty dodgy uh, CGI for the yeah, period. I mean, uh, you know, though I'll admit, having recently seen Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, it's still leagues above the blood in that. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> score one for I'm nineteen ninety eight. Add, add that, yeah, I'm gonna add that to the old uh, Wikipedia page for Psycho. <laughs> but the one addition that I did like was the inclusion of the surreal subliminal images that occur when mm. a character is in the throes of death, which I actually rewound it like a couple of times just to be able to like get a gauge on not only that it happened because it happened so suddenly, but also to see if I could draw some sort of uh, significance to the subliminal messages. And while I don't know necessarily that it's all that deep because the subliminal message, uh, subliminal images that play is during the shower scene, right? While Marion's being stabbed to death, there's this brief cutaway to like a storm clouds rolling in, right? And then you have yeah. in her last moment of life, you see a close up of her eyes and the pupils are dilating. And then mm-hmm. later on, when Arbogast is having his famous fall down the stairs, which they, you know, faithfully recreated uh, the same way that it was shot in the original film, um, there's an image of a nude woman that's blindfolded. And then there's an image of a calf standing in the middle of the street. 
And I thought that that was an interesting stylistic addition that, if anything, I don't know that it necessarily adds a great deal in terms of like significance, as I said, but Hmm. ultimately I thought that was like something that a director could add to a film that doesn't necessarily infringe, I suppose, on the actual moment because it doesn't obviously change anything that occurs at the end result of that moment, but it more is just kind of this unsettling icing, I suppose, that you could put on something that kind of is like, oh, well, I'm going to throw this sort of interesting visual curveball to something that people assume that they know is like how it plays out from start to finish, which they do, but that just gives it a little bit more of a distinguishing quality, I suppose, for this film as a whole. Um, I don't know. How did you feel about those inclusions? They are so fleeting after all. Yeah. I mean, my take on it is they feel like they're supposed to be abstract versions of the last, you know, the life flashing before your eyes, you know, images that you associate with things. And while instead of going for the hokey, here I am as a baby, here I am as a child, blah, 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 like that, it's literally just like fleeting pictures that kind of remind people of something. So, you know, maybe Arbogast growing up on a farm or something, and that's why he has the calf. And, you know, maybe like something to do with some sort of illicit history he has, you know, with the woman. And, you know, same with Marion as well, you know, it's just maybe the storm clouds represent something about you know, from her past and I like that you know they don't as you said as a result they don't really add much you know they yeah. are open to interpretation so much that you know they can just be left as like well they just put a bunch of images in there and it doesn't matter but I think that that's how I'd look at them I think considering they only appear when those two characters are dying you know and um, yeah that, I would say they have to be that if anything mm. I suppose I appreciate those more, those moments more, especially when you contrast it against Arbogast's final moment, which is right after the subliminal image. And then, you know, he finally hits the bottom of the stairs instead of the traditional, you know, Norman going right after him. And we're viewing that from afar. You get his POV for a moment and you see this kind of Mm. blurred image of Norman leaping onto him. Like that was one of those additions that, you know, doesn't fundamentally change anything, but it kind of, I was kind of just like, again, to your point about, you know, looking at who could be the killer from just a physicality standpoint. It's like, yeah, yeah clearly this is – and you're going into the remake. You obviously know the twist and whatnot. But in revisiting the original film a few weeks ago, it was the type of thing where I was so appreciative of how well Hitchcock covers his tracks in terms of yeah. really not laying out any sort of like glaring moments where it's like, okay, yeah, clearly – this is Norman, right? And, you know, while yeah. you might have your suspicions throughout the film leading up to that reveal, you're not necessarily given this irrefutable piece of evidence, I feel, that is blatantly displayed to the audience, which, you know, some films that have tried to do the whodunit type of thing with the killer have not been as tightly crafted of a, uh, a narrative or sort of characterizations, if you will. Um, yeah. And that little moment, it was kind of like, okay, not only does this not add anything, but it further kind of reinforces the idea of like, yeah, we can see through this sort of whodunit facade in the remake yeah. to the degree that it's like, yeah, clearly this is not some frail old woman, which again is a little bit of a disservice, I think, to Bates overall as a character, yeah. um, which, you know, I'm not going to clutch pearls over, but at the same time, it's a notable sort of um, stylistic decision that was made that I don't necessarily think needed to be done. Doing that role and having that sort of slender form that maybe got a bit of that, 
charm you know with a slight creepiness it'd be crispin glover you know at that yeah. time would have been perfect or henry I thomas think i think yeah that I mean, yeah henry uh, thomas is a good shout considering he was the best part of the yeah. last film of um psycho four the beginning and the fact that he was considered i believe but then they ultimately passed on him i was just like but he got yeah. it so right <laughs> you had the man there <laughs> yeah it's a shame but you know that's it's an odd one, yeah. As you say, I think because we had this idea of what he should be like in our minds, um, that can be seen as like a, our own sort of internal bias of what the character should be like. But it then does, as we said, go back to this idea that if you're going to have someone portraying a frail woman, they kind of have to have some sort of physique that could look like that, and that's why Glover for mm-hmm. me would be the perfect sort of person. But um, yeah, sorry. To, jumping in on your point again. <laughs> um, what I was going to say was that one thing that they added that I was a fan of was giving us a look at the fruit seller again, obviously at the end of the film, but it yeah. feels so much more in line with Norman and his personality, which is that the fruit seller has been turned into this taxidermy museum. Um, and it's a very, very brief shot. But at the same time, that's one of those moments that I was like, oh, I wish that we had had a couple more moments that felt like the world was more of a reflection of Norman having taken over this house. And while, you know, he's not going to completely uproot the way that his mother had the house and whatnot, because, you know, that is basically the person that he has, uh, you know, formed his entire life around or conformed his life to and has now taken on and continued that life in a uh, an interesting way. It's the type of thing where I was appreciative of that. You got to see a little bit more of his personality in that regard. It was something that they did in the third film and the fourth film was that they leaned a little bit more into like the taxidermy, which they only ever really have that one scene in the original film. And then the second film, there's not a lot done with it, but it was just interesting again to see what you would assume his character would be doing off screen. Right. And so I was a fan more of that, but it's such a fleeting bit. And then it's followed up with that final confrontation between obviously Norman, who's dressed up as, Norma, and then he has that fight scene with uh, Sam, which yeah. goes on longer than it does in the film. And that is really another moment that I think highlights, like, maybe you should have just, like, kept this scene the same length that it was in the film, because the fight scene continuing is not only not very well choreographed, but it's like, what does this really add? Um, mm. Other than, you know, Vigo Mortensen tussling around with Vince Vaughn. Yeah, which uh, I don't know if it's a, a required... Um I don't think there's a particular kink with that out there. So <laughs> it was a check, check in a box for somebody, I suppose. So I'm sure. Well, uh, maybe there is. <laughs> if I'm wrong, by all means. I guess the one thing that also, uh, I suppose, a shot-for-shot modernizing of a film um, that can do a disservice to the remake in terms of exposing a moment from the original that either was not a highlight or something that just never quite clicked for me was the way that the film ends. I've always found that psycho's ending is probably outside of the shot of Norman in the cell, like having the psychiatrist come in and basically spend five minutes monologuing about every single thing that explains, you know, why he did this, what Mm -hmm. his condition is and all of that. That has always been what I found to be, one of the weakest parts of Psycho is this kind of just black and white explanation of it to the degree that when you kind of go through that in color and whatnot, and also just the fact that, you know, you have Robert Forrest, who is this great character actor, 
At the same time, though, it's like, I, I don't think the writing for that scene is even particularly well done. So you have this guy that is dealing with material that is kind of whatever at that point. Mm. And it's just a scene that feels so unneeded because of how much it explains. I was like, if there had been a moment to amend in this entire film, I probably would have gone with that. Um, yeah. But, you know, that's again, maybe I'm being a little precious about uh, about how much well, I appreciate the, the ending of the uh, original film. Yeah, I think you're not wrong in some respects because I think it is a product of its time where you needed to have it to sort of get through to audiences what the fuck has sure. just happened sort of thing because it was a difference is we know what's happened here and you know, again that comes to be a problem in general with this film where it's like are you pretending that the original doesn't exist and just whatever but, and going that sort of way but yeah so maybe the monologue could be clipped but again if you're trying to do it as it was you kind of have to keep it um just some things don't age as well in terms of like repeating i think i think a good example of the opposite is um peter jackson's king kong you know using the same final line uh it it, it still works yeah it was beauty kill the beast is just short and sharp enough that it works you know i think you can't but doing a five minute monologue that explains everything after the fact when we're already a savvy audience coming into it you know in a post meta horror era you know it, it kind of just reads like yeah we know yeah not only did we know before the likes of screen came along and, and pointed all these things out now we doubly know so it's uh <laughs> yeah but obviously they would not to know the impact that screen would have had in the time they were well, it had been, it had gone, you know, but you know, it was still fairly new. Yeah, you know, I don't really think you could see the cultural impact of what that film would do to horror at that time, you know, and it, that close to it, you know. So it, it's a slight victim of that uh, as well. But um, yeah, and I think just overall, you know, the more that I think about the movie, it is really a great example of a shot for shot, I would say, being completely inoffensive for the most part, right? I think that that mm. was largely my fear going into this for being a shot for shot. It's like, if you're going to talk this big game about going the distance to do a shot for shot, it needs to be something that is actually going to live up to that. And at the same time, you know, staying true to that as much as you can. And I would say that in terms of the Psycho remake and, you know, Gus Van Zandt's effort, this is a really, from a labor of love standpoint, mm. is probably as close as you could get to being successful with doing a shot-for-shot shot remake. Granted, I don't know necessarily that this film justifies going that route always. Mm. You know, I don't know that it's necessarily productive. At times, I don't necessarily know that I would say that I enjoyed watching it because it's the thing where we came back to, you know, our feelings on remakes. It's like, I would rather just watch the remake or watch the original, excuse me. Um, but it is the type of thing also that it's like you could theoretically do a shot for shot remake and have small stylistic changes or perspective shifts. And they certainly don't always work here. And at the same time, though, you know, they're successful periodically enough that you could say, well, there is some room for that type of conversation of leaving a director or a writer's sort of mark on a film, despite the fact it's supposed to be shot for shot. Um, yeah. I think, though, that that is such a difficult sort of balancing act, right? And yes. maybe it's a testament to, uh, you know, Van Zandt's 
lengthy tenure as being a filmmaker uh, or at the same time having uh, a relationship with the majority of the cast previously. So it's the type of thing where I suppose people, you know, get up, you sort of like riled up about this movie and whatnot. Um, and it, you understand why, you know, it doesn't have a good score on Letterboxd. But I think that has more to do probably with, you know, fandoms and whatnot, or people that just are against remakes or have perhaps a more reductive view on remakes of like, well, they just want to make more money because it was popular in the past, which, you know, to uh, Gus Van Zandt's own uh, quotes coming back to bite him in the ass, it is the type of thing where there's definitely a part of that here for why perhaps that was the genesis of the project. But when you're going to these great pains to not only recreate scenes, but also to improve upon them with techniques that were not available in the past, you know, you're not doing all of that just because this is something that it's like, oh, I'm just going to make money off of this because Psycho is this massive horror, uh, you know, film. Yeah. And I think what it did help do is kind of make it very clear that Hitchcock movies are a very particular type and recreating them exactly just tends to feel like parody um it, no doubt no reason why you know rear window has been parodied so many times that to do it again in any form feels like a parody i mean disturbia being a good example where it is um <laughs> it's, it's odd and you know it's, it's while people have tried i mean last year we had a game version of vertigo which was terrible which was terrible but by all accounts by the sound of it but um it's still going to happen you're still going to get those ones and i think a perfect murder was the one that's the remake of um dialogue for murder which was michael douglas and vigo as we said being part of that film and all right um rebecca i think ben wheatley remade that you know so and people don't like it (laughs) saying uh, (laughs) which is not an uncommon uh, thing for ben wheatley films but you know people will keep trying but um i think it's just whatever you do you are just going to be compared to what's come before it's um because with hitchcock films it tends not just be about the content so much as the way it's framed and that's the key takeaway you you know that is something that if you're going to replicate you're just going to be said to be recreating it or or just copying it and if you go a different route it's going to look inferior simple as that you have to really come up with something distinct to uh make that properly but uh yeah it's an odd one isn't it They'll try. They'll keep yeah. trying. They will keep trying regardless of what people think of, uh, you know, the one the films that have came out previously and whatever their plans are for the future. I suppose my final takeaway is just I would much rather watch a remake where it's a filmmaker sort of taking risks or bending sort of these different factors that are in a pre-existing film series or just a film in general and taking it in new interesting directions like – There's nothing better than sitting down and watching a remake that has this big swing, whether it's stylistically, tonally, whether it's narratively and connecting and just getting to explore this whole new facet of a film's world that you more or less, you know, are probably in love with. If you're thinking about some of the most famous examples of, uh, you know, remakes that have kind of knocked it out of the park and ended up in some instances surpassing the original film that it's being uh, adapted from. But no, man, I was... So glad to have uh, you on not only once again, but to uh, take this journey with me. I believe this was the first time you'd seen it as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. It was like, again, yeah. one of those things where 
nothing about it seemed like I was going to watch it. And sorry, just to quickly throw this in, because I only just now discovered this and gone, oh my God, it's true. Uh, in terms of remakes of Hitchcock films, mm-hmm. Mission Impossible 2 is a remake of Notorious. Whoa. Th- this is- <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to do some research on that one. Holy shit. Like scene by scene. Yeah, that that is now like, wow. Yeah, it's not like even hidden oh either. <laughs> it's like, that's, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's like a bombshell. <laughs> yeah, having all, yes. I'm trying to connect all of the dots and man, that's blowing me away. And yeah, there you go. Another example of <laughs> a not good Hitchcock remake. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, to be fair, I think John Woo's strengths lied in uh, other aspects of that film. Um, but no, I think that, yeah, yeah, it's, I suppose, yeah, that's, Jesus, that's a crazy revelation right there. I know. That goes up there with that trivia about the knife being accredited to John Woo in in this film, which is uh, two, you know, mm. two years, three years earlier. So yeah, Christ, that's a weird yeah. connection. <laughs> Well, I was glad to uh, see that, you know, your first time with the film that I'm sure both of us were a little apprehensive about actually sitting down to watch ended up being something that was more of a unique experiment, I would say, rather than being perhaps the uh, the dumpster fire that I thought it was going to end up being. Yeah. Um, but as always, it's, uh, it's a pleasure having you on to chat about horror. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.